You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 131. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. So I think of picky eating really as a measure of how feeding is going for the parent. Welcome back, veggie lovers. Happy Sunday. I hope that you are having a plantastic day and that you've had a plantastic week. I have a great episode for you with Jennifer Anderson, who is a registered dietitian and the woman behind Kids Eat in Color. It's such a great conversation. Got really passionate, got really into it, and I know that you're going to enjoy it. But before I tell you more about Jennifer, just want to remind you that I have tons of freebies on my website. If you go to dryami.com, that's spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash free, there's a lot of resources there that will help you learn a lot. How to replace meat, how to replace dairy, nutrients of concern breakfast, lunch, eating out, uh, shopping list. And even for those of you that are trying to be friendlier to the planet and reduce your consumption of plastics, there is a zero waste swaps guide. So check it out, dryami.com forward slash free. And thank you to all of you that have read my book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. Thank you so much for reading it, reviewing it, sharing it with your friends and family. It warms my heart. And little by little, we'll get the word out about this book. So thank you so much. The information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not medical advice. So it is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment by a professional. If you have concerns about you or your own child's eating, nutrition, or growth, please consult with a doctor. Jennifer Anderson is a registered dietitian, mom of two exciting boys, and cheerleader to hundreds of thousands of parents feeding kids through the Kids Eat in Color social media movement. She helps parents let go of mealtime battles, reduce their stress, and get their kids on the path to eating better. And she also has lots of resources on her website and a program. Her website is called kidseatincolor.com. And on Instagram, you can find her at Kids Eat in Color. There's dots between each one of the words, but you can also just type in Kids Eat in Color. She has 1.1 million followers. So you know that her feed is beautiful. She has lots of great things to say, and she really helps support parents. She's realistic. I love that she has a background in cultural anthropology, master of public health. She is able to see things in a different perspective. And I really appreciate her insight. I appreciate her wisdom and her experience that she brings to the table to help parents. And in this conversation, we talk about feeding children. We talk about what picky eating is. I love her definition of how she determines picky eating, why mealtimes are stressful for parents, why parents get confused about growth charts, and what her thoughts are about children in larger sized bodies, why we should even care about what we feed our kids. Should we worry about our kids eating fruits and veggies? And why words and language are so important when we're talking about food, when we're talking about body size. 
and what she wishes more parents knew. It's a really great conversation. Like I said, you're going to love it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, Jennifer Anderson, to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am so happy to have you here with me today. I'm so happy to be here, Yami. Thank you so much. Well, I've been following you for a while. I'm a huge fan of your Instagram feed, Kids Eat in Color. You provide such amazing information and resources. So I'm just thrilled to have an hour with you so that I can (laughs) ask you all the burning questions. I feel like we do align a lot, but Mm -hmm. I know that there's things that you can teach me and my audience today. But before we get into all of that, Tell us, why did you even become a dietitian? I know that your path wasn't a straight path. Mm -hmm. So tell us what led you to the world of dietetics. Yeah, that's a great question. So right out of college, I had studied anthropology and economics, and I decided I wanted to do community development work. And I got a job at a food bank coordinating their youth nutrition programs. And I just saw firsthand how powerful nutrition was when it came to communities and children. And I became interested in the topic of nutrition. Now, at the same time, I had just gotten married and my husband said, you should go back and get a master's degree. And I had some professors from college who were telling me the same thing. And I thought, "Uh, I don't know. I didn't know anybody with a master's degree. I didn't, you know, nobody in my family had one. And But next thing I know, I decide that I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to study nutrition. And someone told me at one of the schools that I visited that if I wanted to be a nutrition expert, I needed to become a registered dietitian. I will be 100% honest. That is the only reason that I decided to become a registered dietitian because this one professor in one place told me that it was a good idea. (laughs) It became a very long path at that point. I had to go back to school for prerequisites. I got my master's in public health. I learned that public health is really my passion. And then I became a registered dietitian on top of that. I love it. No, but it's so rich though, because your background is unique. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you have, I also have a master of public health and I tell Mm -hmm. people all the time, I'm a physician. So my whole day is working one-on-one with patients, but I can understand things from a bigger perspective from mm-hmm. a public health perspective. And you have this different view of life, which I really appreciate your background for that. Okay. So, and, but I love how you did eventually get a master's, even though you, you're like, yeah. didn't know about master's and you're like, oh, I'm just going to get a master's. Right. So that's really good. Okay. So tell me about having your own kids. So you become a registered dietitian and then you have children yourself. How right. has that changed how you view nutrition? and the work that you do. So when I had my son, you know, it was all great when you're breastfeeding, uh, which is what I was doing. And by great, I mean, painful, complicated, you know, all those, all those things. It's like a mixed bag, right? But at least it's like straightforward, whether you're breastfeeding or formula feeding, it's like really straightforward. There's one thing you're feeding the kid. And then as soon as he started eating, he stopped gaining weight properly. There were all these growth issues. And I just firsthand learned that feeding kids is really complicated and you may not get a kid who eats everything that you serve and you may not get a kid who eats how much they need. There's all these things that might come up. Now I had to get more educated myself on how to manage feeding kids because it wasn't, it didn't come easy. My second child um, is selective. (laughs) Thankfully I had put a lot of things into place with the first one so that we could actually raise him in an environment that was helpful for piggy eating. So he has that to thank his brother for. <laughs> you kind of were already primed, right? Right, right. So because you're a dietitian, do a lot of people assume that your kids are like these perfect eaters? Oh, for sure. They assume I eat perfectly, that my kids eat perfectly. If there is even a quote, perfect way to eat, they assume that my kids eat healthfully because it came naturally. <laughs> no, it's a lot of work. It's day to day, the grind, the hard days, the easy days. And, and yeah, they do eat pretty well, but they don't eat perfectly. Just the other day, one of my kids said, that lunch that you made me was disgusting. 
And I just, I was like in a place in pandemic life where I just couldn't handle that sort of conversation. And I said, okay, well then I'm not going to make your lunch anymore. You can make it yourself (laughs) tomorrow. (laughs) So last night he's on the kitchen floor making his lunch, happy as a clam. I thought, oh, I don't know. Maybe that was great. Now, of course, I could, I probably should have been a, a little nicer about that. Um, <laughs> now, I I don't know that that's going to go on forever, but it certainly happened today. And and you know what? He made himself a lunch with apples, carrots. He made himself a, an almond butter and jelly English muffin, and he put a few crackers in, and that was his lunch. And he was so proud of himself. And I thought, oh my gosh, my work is done here. <laughs> Made that's yourself a beautiful. And, and how old is that one? He's seven. Oh, that's so cute. No, I mean, I think the same thing for me. I mean, I'm a pediatrician. I'm a physician. I've written a book on this subject and it's still the same thing. You know, there's still struggles and mm-hmm. there's still days where I'm just like, uh, why does this still happen? You know, like you just right. feel like at some point you're going to be done, but you're not, you still, your kids grow, they change, you encounter different issues. Like I have one who's a teenager now. So it all goes through their phases. Right. And Um, there's some, I feel like every three months you get a new kid, right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the (laughs) world around us changes. So with this pandemic, we had a whole different set of challenges Mm -hmm. where everybody was home all day long. And now kids were like, you know what? I think a snack sounds good now. And maybe in 10 minutes and maybe another 10 minutes, you know? So uh, parents are definitely having to to navigate those new challenges in our lives. Mm -hmm. But let's get back to this definition, this term picky eating, because 85% of parents claim that their child is a picky eater. Mm -hmm. So how do you define picky eating? You also use the term selective. So tell me a little bit about these terms and what they mean. Well, as you've alluded to, the term picky eating does not have a textbook definition at this time. So I think of it from the perspective of, do you think you have a picky eater? How are mealtimes going for you? Because really a lot of the pain is at the parent level. Mm-hmm. So even if you think your child is selective and this parent doesn't think their child is selective, your ch- children may eat the same things, but those parents may experience that eating on totally different playing fields. One may think they're the worst parent in the world. They think this is the biggest problem. Another parent may be like, oh, whatever. I don't, I really don't care at all. And they're eating the same number of foods. So I think of picky eating really as a measure of how feeding is going for the parent. Now, as a professional, there are also some things that are problematic. When I see what I like to call extreme picky eating, some people have called them problem feeders, and there's different measures that have been used by different people to categorize this. But some of the things that I look for are how many foods is your child eating? Are they two years old and eating less than 20 foods? That's a red flag. Are you feeling really, really badly about feeding and you think that your situation is way worse than everyone around you? That's another red flag. Is you, has your child never tried a new food in the past two years? That's a huge red flag. Does your child, um, when they drop a food off their list, do they never pick it up, right? So they went from eating 90 foods and now they're down to 20 foods and they absolutely will not eat anything else. All of those suggest that there's something else going on. Another thing I look for is how do they interact with foods? Are they avoiding certain textures? Are they freaking out? at meals, if they see a food that they don't like, are the reactions big? All of those things then lead me to say, okay, you need further support. This is not enough. If your child is not eating foods from enough food groups to get what they need, that's also a big red flag. Mm -hmm. And for that extreme picky eating, which I think that list of red flags is fabulous. So thank you for that. What percent of the picky eating category do you think is this extreme picky eating group? Mm, that's, that is a great question. I wish that I had a statistic to pull out of my back pocket for that. Um, I don't, <laughs> but now I, I want to go do a literature review and find out if there is a statistic for this. I'm not sure if there is or not. I'm going to just 
kind of take a wild stab at it based on my Better Bites program, which is my program for the families who are struggling with picky eating in their family. Not everyone in that program has an extremely picky eater. Um, but the program is geared to design, not just the, what I like to call kind of typical picky eating, but the extreme as well. And I would say probably in that program, which is designed to attract people, you know, we probably have between 20 and 50% of the people in that program have an extremely picky eater. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that is not generalizable to the public at all. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would guess maybe like 10%, something like that. Yeah. But I, I really, of the people who say they have a picky eater, do 10% have picky eating, extreme picky eating. It's possible, but don't quote me on that. Yeah. No. And obviously you, this is your specialty, you know, and so you're going to see more of that, but right. it's just interesting because like I said, most parents, if you ask them, is your child a picky eater? will say yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I love how you took it to focusing on the pain, focusing on the distress of the actual parent. That's where you start. So let's talk about stress and parents. Cause I feel like mm -hmm. parents are just really stressed out, especially right now. Mm -hmm. Why are they stressed out at mealtimes? What is it specifically that they're anxious about when they're feeding their kids? I think most parents are concerned that their child is not going to be healthy either now or in the future. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, sometimes we want to vilify parents and we want to say, oh, you're just trying to control your child or you're just trying to do that. Most of our, most of that all comes from a deep concern for the health and well-being of our child. The other thing is we want to be good parents. We we want to think we're doing the right thing. And when we think we're doing the right thing and we're getting this really horrible reaction from our child and we think the right thing is a child that's eating a balanced meal and our child is only eating bread, we feel like we're a bad parent. And that is got to be one of the worst feelings in the world. Yes. Right? No, that shame. Yeah. Shame drives so much of this and this right. whole comparison thing, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's really hard, you know, it's because so in our minds, we're assuming that every other parent's feeding their kid mm -hmm. broccoli and, you know, steamed things and whole foods and never has candy, you know? Uh -huh. And so when compared to our lives, we're like, oh my God, I don't know if my kid's eating a vegetable all week, I must be a horrible parent. And right. they're not going to grow and they're going to get some kind of horrible disease. And it's like this- right this really vague, really stress provoking thoughts, you know? Yes. Yes. I completely agree. And compound that with the new movements of food documentaries that mm. are based on fear. I cannot get behind them at all. I never recommend that people watch them. I've had to watch my fair share in public health school and that sort of thing. They are so fear-based and they don't provide reasonable information that we can act on and still be reasonable people, right? Like some people will watch documentaries and think, oh my gosh, I can never ever feed my child an egg or milk again. If I do, I am feeding them cigarettes. Like, I am sorry. There is a difference between a cigarette and an egg. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I do somewhat agree with you because I agree that documentaries, they are meant to impact our emotion in general. That's right. what documentaries right. are, right? right? They're meant to cause us to think about something enough mm -hmm. that we're going to make a change. That's what the producers of documentaries want to do. They, exactly. They want to make us change something. And so it can feed into a parent's fears that they're doing something horrible to their children. Yeah. I definitely yeah. agree with that. Um, and I also agree with you that the majority of parents, the great majority of parents, they are trying so hard to do their best. And uh, I always try to just send so much love and support to them because I know right. what it's like being a parent. Mm -hmm. You know what it's like being a parent. Um, right. So yeah, I think it, it can be very complicated. It can be very stressful, lots of shame, lots of guilt. What do you see as far as friends, family, or even other health professionals that might feed into some of this guilt and shame when it comes to feeding our children? So there's a, uh, certainly 
I find that family influences a partner, a grandparent, an aunt or uncle, the extended family, they are coming to the table. Everybody's coming to the food table with their past and their beliefs and all of these things. And if you say, you know what, I've learned that allowing my child to choose whether or not to eat with themselves is a really strong skill that's going to benefit them their entire life. I've learned that and I want to try to implement with that with my child. Now I go over to grandma's house for dinner. Grandma is a clean your plate or she's going to guilt shame who knows, maybe even force feed you at the table. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when you don't do that to your child, grandma may even look you point blank, like look you in the eyes and say, you are a bad parent. You're not doing it right. You're weak. She's running all over you. Yeah. And that feels really crappy. <laughs> like yeah. we don't want to feel like that. Right. And she may like make your life even miserable. Right. There, um, I find a lot of times the extended family and, and that sort of thing can really feed into this idea that you're not doing it right. You're a bad parent. You're letting your child walk all over you. Or you're completely depriving your child of every good thing because you decided not to feed your child added sugars before the age of two. Mm-hmm. The family, the family beliefs really influence. And sometimes we have to kind of do some soul, do some soul searching and say, okay, what's it worth it? What, what's worth it here? Do I need to stand up for my child? If my mother is force feeding my child and my mother doesn't, but if she was, I believe in that moment, it would be very good for me to step in and say, he can decide what to eat, stop the force feeding where it was. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that crosses a very big line for me. Yeah. Like if somebody yeah. force feeding my child. Yeah. Now, does my mom maybe give my child a few more cookies than I would? Absolutely. <laughs> Do I get in her way? No, I don't. You know what? I say, you know what? At home, we don't have that many cookies and that's fine grandma can spoil him. It's only a couple times a year. It's not a big deal. So we have to really walk these complicated paths and try to figure out what is worth it and what is not. What do I stand my ground on? What do I stand up for? And what do I say? Okay, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, that word again, complicated comes up because it really is. And one of the things that I learned from my own experience with my parents is having empathy and mm-hmm. trying to understand their food and eating history as well. So both of my parents grew up in a time around the same time, completely different countries. My mom grew up in the middle of the country, no electricity, no running water, but she never remembers going hungry because she was in Panama and she would climb trees and eat fruit off the trees. And she just remembers her childhood just being Amazing, fantastic, plenty of food, but they were very, very poor, like really poor, like only one pair of shoes, you know. But my dad grew up in southern Ohio, lots of siblings, place where there was really harsh winters, and he remembers just having flour, water, soup, flour, you know, like just flour and water. And it almost brings tears to my Mm -hmm. eyes because the way that he feeds my kids comes from that background Mm -hmm. of. I remember being hungry and I remember Mm -hmm. what it was like and it was a horrible thing and I never, ever want you to go hungry. So he is the kind that he provides abundant food and it's always, are you sure you want more? Are you sure you want more? Are you sure you don't want more? Here, there's another serving. Here's another serving. And it comes (laughs) from his background Mm -hmm. and it used to really stress me out because I'm like, you're overfeeding my kids. But once I sat down with him and understood why he had that recurrent need to feel like he was really feeding my children. I relaxed and I just talked to my kids and I told them, you know, if you're full and you don't want any more, just say, no, thank you politely. You might have to say it more than once, mm-hmm. but just let Papa know that you're, you're good, <laughs> you know, yeah. so that he can feel confident in that. But I think understanding the food and eating history and also too, for people our age or, you know, older people that may have had disordered eating and body image problems, the opposite can happen mm-hmm. with me, with my children of maybe even getting worried about them eating too much and those kinds of things. So I think all of those histories and backgrounds is really important. But Mm -hmm. speaking of body image and body size, let's talk about growth charts. 
Let's do it. <laughs> this is this is a huge deal, okay? So being a pediatrician, I talk about right. charts every single day, multiple times a day, and parents are really obsessed with it. I try not to overemphasize growth charts, but I do need to look at them because mm-hmm. they are important as a pediatrician. But why do you think parents are so obsessed with growth charts and where are they misunderstanding them? Yeah, so this is a great question. So here's what I think most parents hear when they hear a growth chart. Where I just, let's just say I'm a a parent, I know nothing, I've had no medical training, whatever. You tell me growth chart. I assume that's a growth chart for my child. You say 50th percentile. I assume 50th percentile means right in the middle, right where they should be. So when you tell me my child is fifth percentile, I assume, oh my gosh, he needs to grow 45 percentiles to become normal again. Or you tell me that I have a child who's 75th percentile, and I think, oh my gosh, is he supposed to go down to 50th percentile? Except if you tell me my child's 75th percentile in height, because in the United States, we like tall things, big things. We think that's better. Then we're like, oh, great, I got lucky. But if my kid is fifth percentile for height, then I think there's something wrong with my child. I think that is the biggest thing. I don't think it's been helped by this fascination with the CDC cutoffs for what they term childhood obesity at the 85th and 95th overweight and obesity at 85th and 95th percentiles. Because some normal children, as we know, those those curves were based on normal children. Some normal children are at the 85th or 95th percentile for weight and height. And they're, that's just their growth trajectory. They, they always were, they always would have been larger people. And now we're telling the parents that they need to put their kid on a diet. I cannot tell you how many hundreds of DMs I've received from people telling me that their pediatrician told them to put their child on a diet because they just happen to be at some percentile. And I always say, stop, don't, don't do it. Go, go talk to a dietitian, first of all. Um, maybe they can, they can like do some damage control here. And so I think there's this really big fear of kids in bigger bodies. Parents think, oh my gosh, it's my job to control my child's weight. There's a lot of misconceptions about this. There's a lot of fear of being overweight. There's a lot of weight bias. There's a lot of just extreme aggression toward people in larger bodies. And we're just, we're just like dumping it on our kids. Meanwhile, as adults, we're dieting, we're weighing ourselves in front of the kids. We're talking about going on diets. And now we have kids as young as three saying, oh, I'm on a diet. I'm going on a diet. I can't eat that. That's going to make me fat. There's just, uh, it's a big mess, I feel like. Uh, oh my gosh. I just feel like my chest gets so tight because this is mm-hmm. definitely my core area of passion right here. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand this. There's more people that need to understand what's going on because like you said, this vicious cycle is just going to continue and continue because Mm -hmm. we're passing it down to our kids. Mm -hmm. But that fear, that fear that we talked about where parents are really stressed out is so apparent when it comes to children with larger size bodies, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, there's so much fear of our kids being overweight or quote obese and It is fueled by our society of being thinner is better. And in the health arena, especially if you work in this area in the health arena, it's almost like you're expected to want to make everybody thin. Like everybody just needs thin. And if you're not doing that, there's something wrong with you because all your, you know, clients or patients are going to be unhealthy and have disease, you know, because they're not thin. So when it comes to whenever you work with families that have been sent to you or referred to you or in your program because they have larger size bodies, how do you approach talking to the parents about feeding them and talking to them and working with these children? So this is, this is a huge and growing issue. And I feel like this is so important to talk about right now because with the pandemic and quarantines and less sports for kids, like 
kids have gotten larger over quarantine, as have adults, and parents are really starting to freak out. Yes. I'm seeing this more and more in my Better Bites program where parents are saying, I can't let my child eat however much they want to eat because then they'll gain weight. Or my partner thinks if we let my child eat as much as they want, they'll just eat bread and they'll gain weight. And what's happening is because we are so focused on weight, we are not implementing the best practices for allowing a child to have a good relationship with food, a good relationship with their body and improve their nutritional status. That's the kicker. Like every time we try to control someone's weight, we mess up all the things that we really want. We're, we're talking about weight as if weight is the problem. Weight is a symptom or weight is just the way the person is. There's some people that are just larger. There's, that is their natural, natural growth trajectory. They were 95th percentile babies from the start. And next thing you know, I have a Oh my gosh, I just got a message from someone who said, my pediatrician just told me that my 100% breastfed baby is overweight. Like, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. And I think pediatricians are afraid of weight gain. Pediatricians are afraid of being accused of not addressing it with families. They're, They're being pressured to talk to families about something they don't really know about. They don't know a lot of the best feeding practices for kids always. And obviously there's many like yourself who have a really good understanding. You've done a lot of work in this area, but there's plenty of others who just, they haven't had the time, you know, there's other things going on. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's really stressful. And I think I've also like totally gone on some tangent. This is, this is like my everything. So you could go on forever if you want, but as a pediatrician, I know what that feels like. I'm saying this mm-hmm. all the time on this podcast is I had to learn. I had to go through my own experiences and I had to be courageous enough to step out and see it a different way. Right. Because I, I have Google alerts, you know, and I, mm-hmm. every week I get articles for different search terms. And one of them is like pediatric health or something like that. And there's literally like five to 10 articles every week where the headline is childhood obesity worsening, childhood obesity worsening, everybody's getting fat. Ah, you know, right. like it's just like, right. like so much panic. So mm-hmm. I can understand where people haven't even looked at this different perspective where it's just in their minds constantly right now. Like, okay, right. we need to address this because we need to control it. And right. as you said, very plainly, and I agree with it hundred percent, we do not have control over our child's weight. Mm-hmm. Even though we are being told over and over again by other health professionals that we do, we don't, we don't even have control over our own weight. A lot of people right. think that they do, but we don't. Right. So as what- public health professionals, we know this, there is so much research showing people have a lot less control over their weight than they think they do. Yeah. I don't think that that many public health professionals know that though. That's a good point. I, I really think that the majority of people in our country believe that we do. And then if you don't, you're being lazy or you are being, uh, you just don't care about your health. Um, you know, like they just put the blame on the individual. Like if you're yeah. not actively trying to control your weight, there is something wrong with you and you're yeah. a bad person and you should be condemned and shamed online. Well, Absolutely. And (laughs) if you follow like any larger bodied people online, what they go through online is insane. I, I just can't even, I I don't understand how it's become. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's not, it's not okay. It's horrible. It's um, yeah. But here, here's what I think. I think from the public health perspective, anybody who's really thought about it and granted I think there's a lot of different public health tracks, Mm -hmm. but anybody in like public health nutrition knows the effect of food advertising, the effect of where food is, the effect of food deserts, the effect of racism in the food system, all of these things, the effect of poverty. It is incredibly complex how much a person weighs and what they might choose to eat and what their stress levels are and what that's doing to their brain chemistry. I mean, in the spring, my entire life, was turned upside down. You know, all of a sudden I'm in a quarantine with 
with two, you know, super energetic boys and a husband and in a two bedroom apartment. And I'm like, you know, we're all having to work. I mean, it was crazy. Guess what happened to my brain? It went into high stress mode. Mm -hmm. Do you know what your brain needs in high stress mode? It needs glucose. You know where you get that from carbohydrates. Guess what I started wanting to eat all the time? (laughs) Carbohydrates. Guess what that caused my pants size to do? Increase. I mean, did I have any control over that? Absolutely not. I absolutely did not have any control over what was happening around me in my brain at that time, right? Now, since then, my brain has calmed down. I no longer think about carbohydrates 100 times a day. I've gone back to like a normal eating pattern, right? But we don't understand that people don't have as much control as we think they do. Yes, people have control. Yes, we can help parents be their kids better. But we, because we're focused on weight, this is, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. When we focus on weight as the problem, we assume food is the solution because we think, oh, calories in, cal- you know, whatever. So it, we begin to think of our problem as very uh, this very simple thing. And the answer to a food problem is a diet. The problem is that's not true. A diet is not the answer to uh, a weight problem. Well, especially with kids. What we don't realize is instead of we're focusing on food and this, this pediatrician told us about our kid on diet, like all this crazy stuff. But the reality is we have really stepped away from evidence-based feeding practices mm-hmm. that allow our child to eat the right food, eat the right amount for their body, all those things. It's really a feeding problem, not a food problem. Now, I'm not going to say that eating fast food 21 times a week is not a food problem. That is a food problem. Um, unless that's all the food that is available to you. But really we have a feeding problem and we're letting the media and the culture and the the businesses selling diet products and the business selling us food and all this stuff tell us that it's a food problem. But really, if we get back to the feeding practices and our relationship with our child in our home and how we treat food and how we connect over food, then a lot of the food issues disappear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, I love it. And this is how I describe it to my families when I'm talking to them, that we don't have control over weight. So don't try to change things to control weight, Mm -hmm. but we do have control over habits and behaviors, Mm -hmm. either by modeling them or by putting practices into place, putting systems into place. Yep. We can adapt those. And obviously during the quarantine, there were things that were completely out of our control. There were people that couldn't even go outside in places like New York, where you can't even go outside. It's very difficult to get physical activity, but I've also seen it. I've seen it all my kids. I've seen this slight little uptick, you know, in their weight during the quarantine. Some parents are stressed out about it. Some parents aren't. But what I said is, Hey, we're going to get back to our habits and behaviors. What are some Mm -hmm. things that you think that you could change now? Not by terms of quantity of food or how much you're taking in, but can we start going outside for walks together as a family, which is also a practice of social connection and stress. Mm -hmm. relief? So Mm -hmm. all of these things, like you said, impact. The other thing that I would say, you know, you're talking about all these different factors that impact our weight. And you mentioned stress for you, but this affects children as well. Mm -hmm. Sleep deprivation affects our metabolism as well. And genetics, which I'm a huge believer in genetics, really playing a part, like people are like, oh, genetics isn't that big of a deal, but there really are true metabolic differences in people eating the exact same calories of food, having different size and shapes of body with the exact Mm -hmm. same calories. So there really is differences. And there are some things when it comes to habits and behaviors that we can help our children learn. Just like you Mm -hmm. said, eating practices, not trying to control the intake or putting our kids on diets. So I love how you're so passionate about this too, because (laughs) I, I wish there was more people that were talking like this and supporting parents in a way that helps them feel like they're not in charge of the size and shape of their children's bodies. Yeah, I mean, it's a losing battle. And, and when we put that on our kid early, 
then they come back 30 years later after 30 years of struggle thinking that they're a horrible person for weighing a certain amount i mean we got to stop doing that it's yes. not helpful it's not right it doesn't help people become healthy i i just i'm losing patience <laughs> yes yes it's so backwards like Yes, I as as a public health professional, I understand there are a lot of unhealthy practices going on. I get it. I understand that kids are being fed way too much of certain things, like way too much dairy I, in a lot of cases. I'm thinking like, no, 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 you need to cut way back on on certain things. Some people say it doesn't matter what kids eat. I can't get behind that. It absolutely matters what kids eat. Do we have to obsess about it? No, because it also matters how kids eat. Like if my kid just eats rice for dinner tomorrow, that's okay because I know another meal he's just going to eat broccoli or he's just going to eat uh, chickpeas or he's just going to eat something else. And me, and then, you know, I'm going to get lucky on Friday and he's going to eat a little bit of everything, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I know over the course of the week, he's getting a balanced diet. So we don't have to obsess about this. And yeah, sometimes he has treats and sweets and parties and, you know, that sort of thing. So it's not that food doesn't matter. It does matter. But we don't have to, like, completely freak out about what our kid is eating and try to use that to control some sort of, you know, weight issue or something like that. I think the one exception is there are some kids who have medical diet needs mm-hmm. and then we do have to control what they eat. And we, have, you know, if they have allergies, we have to get really nitty gritty about it. So there's always exceptions, but there's also this balance, this balance of, okay, how I'm feeding is important. And yeah, maybe my kid eats a little bit less vegetables now, but in the long run, they become a competent, well-rounded eater. Yes. Oh, so beautifully put. I love that. And yes, always there's going to be exceptions. So I would say the majority of kids, we definitely don't need to be micromanaging and obsessing. And I even say, I don't know, I'm not a dietitian, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the variety doesn't even have to be on a daily or weekly level, but even more on a monthly level, because there are some weeks where my kid just wants that one thing every meal, you know, but I know next week it's going to be different. And so Mm -hmm. on the, on the terms of looking at it on a month long, how much variety is there? I don't have to be so stressed out that every meal they have to have like this perfectly beautiful, well-rounded plate and eat everything on there. We don't need to be micromanaging all of that stuff. But this takes me to the next question is why should we care? You, You do care as a dietitian. You do care about what we are feeding our children, what we're offering and presenting to our children. So why should we care about our kids eating fruits and veggies? Yeah. So food does matter and food does affect our kids' health. We want to make sure that they're getting all the vitamins and minerals that they need to grow and thrive. There's no way around that. As a professional, I can't say it doesn't matter what your kids eat because it does matter. And those little, those, those deficits do balloon. And I think honestly, what I would like to see is more pediatricians doing a little bit of micronutrient testing for kids whose parents say they're picky eaters. Mm-hmm. They just like when a, a parent comes in and says, I have a picky eater, I I want them to ask a few more questions. Like, what does that mean to you? How many foods are they eating? Can you show me a couple pictures of of what that means? And that way they can know, okay, it's possible that they're not getting enough iron. They're not getting enough vitamin D. They're not getting enough zinc. Uh, Okay. They're telling me their kid is vegetarian. Am I testing? Am I making sure and asking a few questions to make sure they're getting enough iodine, that they're getting enough choline, getting some of those things? Because those are more, more prevalent in, you know, parents who say their kids are piggy eaters. So it does matter. It does matter. And you know what? Here's where it also matters in the long run. Let's say that your child eat some fruits and veggies now. And honestly, they eat more fruit than veggies because let's face it, fruit is more delicious than veggies. <laughs> but so they're getting they're getting the nutrients that they need and they're they have a well-balanced diet and maybe they have a few fortified foods, fortified breads or fortified cereals in there. You know, they are getting the nutrients that they need. But you've been exposing your child 
to fresh fruits and vegetables from the time they could eat all the way through the time they leave the house. Hopefully they leave the house, you know, <laughs> eventually when they're ready. And then, and then they start to cook for themselves. And next thing you know, within a couple of years, you realize that they're also serving fruits and vegetables and they're cooking those foods and they've learned to make those foods and they're taking care of themselves in a well-balanced way. That's what you're also doing by serving fruits and veggies long-term is you're maintaining the normalcy that eating a balanced diet is not just burger and fries. That's not balanced. Yes, that can be delicious now and then, but that is not how we want to structure our lives. What we want is more balance. We want more variety as much as we can afford. And we want to teach our kids that that's normal. It's normal to eat a salad. You don't have to be on a diet to eat a salad. That's another pet peeve of mine. It's like vegetables are now diet foods. One time, one lady asked me, she said, wait, aren't you trying to lose weight? And I said, what do you mean? She's like, well, you're eating all these veggies. I was like, well, I'm doing it for my health because, you know, that's going to help me. And she's like, I don't even understand what that means to eat a lot of veggies and not be trying to lose weight. But, oh my gosh, how sad. <laughs> we don't or even, even eating them because they generally taste good to you because you've established a habit that your body and yes. you actually crave it like intuitive. You're like, yes. I want some roasted broccoli tonight because it yes. tastes delicious. Because it tastes delicious. I am a huge fan of broccoli. Um, I do crave it. I also crave potato chips sometimes, but you know, it's all about the balance, but you know, like when you train your gut to get that that fiber and to thrive, your gut is like, Hey lady, where's that salad? Where's that broccoli? And the same thing happens with my kids. And the way that we talk about it is, you know, are your, what are your bugs asking for? Yes. Because sometimes I'll just say, well, you know, I'm trying to, I, I, there was a period of time where I was really focusing on eating much larger portions of vegetables, um, for a specific health issue. And the kids were like, wait, why are you having so many veggies for breakfast? And I said, oh, I'm feeding my bugs because I was specifically working on, you know, increasing the fiber intake for them. And, and, you know, now we can talk about it. What do your bugs want? I don't think they fully understand it, but you know, we watch some YouTube videos, got out the anatomy book, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's the best. I love it. That's so great. Um, speaking of that, let's talk a little bit about language and words. You know, earlier we were talking about weight and size and body image, but also when it comes to just feeding our kids fruits and vegetables, why are the words that we use? Why is the language that we use so important? Sure. So um, let's say you come to me as my pediatrician and you say, well, I want you to eat veggies because they're good for you. And I don't want you to eat candy because it's bad for you. Mm -hmm. Well, as a five-year-old, I'm going to think, hmm. Bad tasting things are good and good tasting things are bad. That means I like bad foods. Yes. We, we have to stop saying, we have to stop putting value judgments on foods and saying they're good or bad. Like the whole, there's a whole group of people saying sugar is poison. Got to really cut that out. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you a couple grams of sugar a day is not going to kill your kid. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's this really strong fear going back to those documentaries that are really instilling this like inflammatory language and fear into what we're doing. Um, it's like, yeah, it makes sense to not give our kids 80 grams of sugar a day. That makes a lot of sense. Can we not call it poison? And can instead we model and serve what balance looks like and how we can live it out? Um, so I'm a really big fan of just calling food by its name. I think it's the simplest hack on the planet. This is broccoli. This is a cookie. This is Halloween candy. This is an apple. This is a sandwich. It's just so simple. The words are already there for us. All we mm -hmm. have to do is use them. But we're like really obsessed. Like I think diet culture has just seeped into our brains. These are sometimes foods. These are red foods. These are growing foods. I, the reality is... If your kid is eating food, even if it's only fast food, they can grow on that. So all food is growing foods. Um, I don't know why we're so obsessed with kind of this categorization and this like black and white thinking. I like to put it in terms of there's some foods that do a lot of things in our bodies and some foods that do a few things. Mm -hmm. Soda does one thing, energy. That's it. 
and maybe some negative things too. But especially for younger kids, I like to really focus on the positive. Positives. Yeah. Yeah. And my kids are older. So I, I feel like I have the benefit of having the knowledge that I can talk to them more objectively about food, sure. risks and benefits associated with different foods. Because I mean, it's really, even if you're eating quote health promoting foods, if that's all you eat, that could also be a risk, right? So we all think romaine is like super healthy, but if that's all you eat, that could become a problem. Like you would have to be eating all day and it would be a really big issue, you know? So every single food we can try to look at more objectively. And I also, once I learned about all this, had to work really hard to even take the term junk food out of my diet, because I feel like that's one of the most prevalent terms. Okay. This is junk food and this is healthy food. Um, but I don't think that's very, that's very helpful for children, especially when they're trying to learn how to tune into their bodies because they're thinking just like you were saying, Oh, well, I really like junk food. So that means I like putting trash in my body, which means maybe I'm bad. Right. I, I might be bad. Right. And if I'm going to be bad, I'm just going to go ahead and be all the way bad and just eat only junk food. Yeah. Know? Why not? I mean, <laughs> so yeah, but I think it's yeah. also hard for adults too, especially some of us that have struggled with disordered eating when it's like this polarization of like, if you like to eat bad food, then maybe you're a food addict. And mm -hmm. so then that's all you want. That's all you can think of. So very tricky. How about words and language when it comes to talking to kids about their bodies and the size of their bodies? Yeah. So that gets a lot, that can be very tricky. I, I just have younger kids at this point and we're focusing on, we don't talk about the size of other people's bodies, whether that's small or large. I, you know, kids are, as they learn words, they don't understand that always necessarily necessarily understand the social graces that go along with that. We were on a hike one day and one of my kids made a very loud, direct comment about somebody's size. And um, I mean, fortunately, it was generic. Unfortunately, I'm sure the woman felt extremely bad in that mm -hmm. situation. I mean, for him, it was neutral comment. It was just this person was a much different size than most people that we see. And so he commented on that. And then, you know, we had to have a talk. Like, we don't talk about the size of other people's bodies, whether that's small or large or, you know, uh, in a wheelchair or there's a lot of different things that we don't just, it's not our job to comment on other people's bodies. Mm -hmm. It's our job to um, just interact with people. And if you notice something about someone, you keep it to yourself. Of course, you know, when you're five, you don't keep much to yourself. Um, so <laughs> just knowing him, it's just, you know, he says whatever he thinks. So um, it was a good teaching moment, but I think Really focusing, instead of complimenting our kids on their looks, on their size, on their, these kind of external factors, the more we can reinforce them as people and, you know, loving them as people first before, oh, you're so pretty, you know, instead focusing on what they're doing. Oh, you work so hard. Wow. I noticed you thought about your brother and what he would like for that gift. And you picked, and look, you picked this gift and he just loves that gift so much. That shows how thoughtful you were. Things like that. The more we can talk about that and the less we can talk about their weight, the better. I don't think we should, I don't, I mean, one of my kids has had weight issues with like two low weight issues. I've never talked to him about his weight. My my husband said, you know, shouldn't we just tell him that he needs to eat more and blah, blah, blah. I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> no research study I showed said that would be a good idea. But I think the bigger issue, especially with younger kids, is how we're talking about ourselves. Yes. Honestly, I think that's probably a thousand times more important than, I mean, obviously talking about the kid is important, but how we're talking about ourselves is huge. Like, are you saying, oh my gosh, look, I gained uh, 10 pounds in quarantine and now I need to lose it. Are you looking at yourself in the mirror? Are you weighing yourself? All these things increase the risk of eating disorder, uh, eating disorders, disordered eating, diet behaviors, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. 
and body image problems, yeah. you know, because that's where it starts. If And it's so common. It's really mm-hmm. very typical for our society, both women and men, yeah. to discuss the size of their bodies. And, you know, I, I, I love the stories about little kids very loudly pointing out other people's bodies, because like you said, it is very innocent. They haven't attached anything to it. Really. They haven't attached good or bad. They're just saying, Whoa, that's really out of the range of size that I've seen. What does that mean? Like they're trying to understand what it means. And I think of a story, I can't remember what book this was that I read, but it was the author was talking about how she struggled with body image her whole life. And her little daughter, who was probably around five or six, came in while she was getting dressed in the closet. And the daughter's like, mommy, your stomach is so big. And the mom was instantly offended. And she's like, why would you say that? And she got really angry at her daughter. And the daughter started crying. And the daughter was like, I... I thought that was a good thing. (laughs) You know, like the daughter wasn't even associating it with it being bad. Like we have started associating. So really when it comes to kids, I think, especially when they're young, is having those conversations about we come in all different shapes Mm -hmm. and sizes and that's okay. And that's how we were made. Just like we have different size noses and we have different hair, you know, like it's just different and it's not good or bad. It just is. And it's not polite to say it to somebody in front of their face, you yeah, know, I was like, or talk I mean, about it. You know? My kid is, kids is so offended when someone says something like, oh, you're so little or you're so short or, and I said, well, do you like it when people talk about your size? It's like, no, like, yeah, like that's, that's our thing to have for ourselves. That's not for yes. us to discuss. I think also exposing our kids to pictures of people of a variety of, of sizes. Yes. Like that's, that can be huge. I remember one time I was scrolling through Instagram and I, um, I follow one woman, she's a weightlifter and mom and has a larger body. And he saw this picture of her. And I think she was maybe modeling a bathing suit or something. And she has a stomach that looks different than mine. And he stopped and he said, wow, what is that? And I said, oh, that's her, that's her tummy. And he said, oh, why does it look like that? And I was like, well, she's a mom and she had a baby and that, you know, it was kind of had kind of some stretch marks on it and some things like that. And, and she had a baby in there and that's where she got those marks on her tummy. I thought, oh, wow. That's, and he was so fascinated. And he thought that was so cool. And he thought, oh my gosh, if I could just bottle this up and keep it forever. The fact that he, he really thought that was incredible that she had grown a baby and that her skin had changed and all of that stuff. And he walked away with another data point. Oh, that lady had a baby and that's how her stomach looked. End of story for him, you know? Yes. Gosh. I mean, there's so many times that I know this is going to sound super like horrible, but sometimes I wish we were nudists because then we would automatically see what different size bodies people have and what they look like. Because I think for those that have larger size bodies or have differently shaped bodies, we try to hide it. And especially on social media, we're only showing like perfect pictures and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so our consciousness just develops with like, okay, people all look this way. And I love how your son had that experience because someday if he does have a partner in a heterosexual relationship and he has a wife that has a baby who has stretch marks and maybe has extra skin, he's like, yeah, that's normal. That's what happens after women have babies sometimes. Not all women do, but some women do get that. And so being exposed to that diversity, I think is so helpful to normalize the range of body size and shapes when it comes to humans. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Okay. So wrapping it up soon here, but what do you wish more parents knew? I wish more parents understood the power of their example. They could actually say a lot less at the dinner table and worry a lot less if they just focused on what they served. They don't even have to talk about nutrition, especially in the first couple of years. And it could just be really sparse, these little tiny conversations about nutrition. But if you're serving a balanced meal and balanced snacks day after day, year after year, that gets into your kid's brain more than anything else you could ever see and will have a bigger nutritional impact than anything you could ever say. Yes. Oh, I love that so much. 
And it is, it's like the parent having the persistence and the consistency and the confidence knowing that it's their actions, setting that example, that's really paving the path for these healthy habits and behaviors for their children. I love it. Speaking of habits, what habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? That is a great question. Probably the habit that I'm most proud of at the moment, knowing my kids, is eating at the table. I realize it sounds <laughs> so simple, but it's so hard to stay consistent on these boundaries. And you know what? In my house, we eat at the table or in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And we have very few arguments over it because that's the way it is. And you know what that particular habit does? It makes our eating intentional. Mm-hmm. It reminds me that I need to put an actual meal on the table, whether it's a meal or a snack. You know, it's got to have some balance because it's formal. It's going to be in that eating place. And also it fosters community. So it enables our family to sit down at the table. It reminds me, hey, it, you know, it's lonely to see a kid sitting at a table by themselves. And it reminds me to go sit with them. Or we're in the kitchen, we're bait eating together, you know, we're like cooking something. And so I think that one habit, although it seems silly on the outside, it has a lot of radiating impacts that improve the mental health, the emotional health, and the physical health of our family. Yes. Oh, it's so comprehensive. And additional to that, I consider it an act of self-care. And I'm to the point where I'm so selfish that all my meals, I'm like, no, I'm going to sit down. I'm not going to be in front of my computer. I'm going to have an actual seat at a table and I'm going to eat my meal, even if it's by myself. Like I... Mm -hmm deserve that, you know? And I think that we should give that to ourselves, give that to ourselves, give it to our family that we have some time. We can have a few minutes together to sit down at this table and eat this meal. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's lovely. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Well, this has been so fantastic. What a conversation. I know we could have gone on for much longer, but my listeners, I know love hearing from you. So please tell them how they can connect with you and what products or services you provide. Sure. So I'm a kids in color anywhere things are. So TikTok, Pinterest, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. I'm there. All the <laughs> <laughs> um, if you need a framework for your kid and you're thinking, I want to do better, but I really don't know how to get started. I have a free child feeding guide um, that is that is super helpful. It's 14 pages that gives you the framework for feeding your kid better and reducing your stress, which is even more important sometimes. (laughs) And then also, if you need a free veggie exposure shopping list, you need ideas for veggies that you want to have in your house, uh, but you're not really sure, I do have a free veggie exposure uh, meal planner and template. And of course, if you want to do the meal plan or the Better Bites program or that sort of thing, kidseatandcolor.com is where to find me for that. Do you do any one-on-one work or is everything through your programs? Currently, I am not able to take on one-on-one. So it is, if you need feeding help, the Better Bates program is the way to go for that. And um, if you just need some more ideas for meals and something really simple and basic, real easy weekdays is, is where you go for that. But right now, yeah, I, pandemic life and lack of childcare, you gotta, you know. Too much on your plate, (laughs) figuratively. All right. This has been so great. No, I love all of your offerings and even just following her on Instagram, you're going to learn so much. I love all your images and all of your education is super, super helpful. Leave us with one call to action. What is one thing that we can do starting today to make feeding our kids more joyful and less stressful? Tell your child you can eat it when you're ready. And when they say, yuck, I don't want to eat it, you can say, oh, that's fine. You can eat it when you're ready. Or you don't have to eat it. Whatever you want to say. But take a step back and give that to your child. It will reduce your stress levels dramatically and potentially really improve your child's eating. 
I love it. Well, and if your kid's not used to it, they might look at you like you grew two heads. Yes. What? <laughs> what just happened here? It just takes a battle away. Like, what is there to battle over when one person's like, okay, you don't have to do that. Yeah. Like, I okay. love it. That's great. All right, Jennifer, this has been so awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio today. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you so much, Yami. It's been so wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.